The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Richard E. Grant, thank you so much for being with us here on The Last Word and Today FM. When I'm of an age, I remember you from Whitnail and I in oh, recent you, years. Matt. I love <laughs> Can You Ever Forgive Me? Oh. I have three members of my production team, though, who are so excited by the fact that you were in the Spice Girls movie. <laughs> and I have a daughter who says Game of Thrones and Loki. Right. You have been in so much over the years, haven't you? I have because I'm so old, Matt. So I've been around. And then, you know, it's what my late wife said to me that I'm in the condiment phase of my career. You sort of brought in like a dip of flavour for either Coleman's mustard for a bit of hot villainy or mild Dijon mustard for, you know, a bit of charm or whatever. So I sort of dipped in and out of all these iconic series for, you know, two or three episodes. So that's how it's happened. And my daughter was eight years old when she uh, saw an answer machine blink on my uh, phone messages in 1996 and said, you've been offered the part of the manager of the Spice Girls, you have to be in this movie. So because I want to meet them. So I did. And how did she get on when she met them? Oh, she just absolutely loved them. I mean, they, they were they were amazing to her. And um, they did all her hair exactly like uh, Emma Bunton had, you know, the two pigtails. Yeah, for Baby Spice, either side of her head. She had her photographs taken with all them. All her school friends went to see them. So I had great playground, um, what do you call it, Credibility, status. Yeah. Credibility for about two terms. And then, of course, they're embarrassed to know me. <laughs> this is the reason you're with us is your new memoir, A Pocketful of Happiness. Mm-hmm. And you've mentioned Joan, your late wife already, whom you were with for 38 years and she died 13 months ago. Uh-huh. How are you? Well, the writing the memoir has been a kind of uh, way to keep her spirit alive and in talking about her and boomeranging backwards and forwards to when we first met and all the adventures that we went through together, um, both professionally and privately, has been a great salve. And and doing this book tour, um, which I started a week ago in Edinburgh and then was in the, uh, the concert hall in Dublin last night, the response has been so extraordinarily gobsmacking to me that... Uh, I mean, curiously, it's a way of people who will never meet her get to know about her. And that's, you know, that's very heart-fulfilling heart for me. So I've really enjoyed that enormously. It's only 13 months, mm-hmm. so grief takes time to wash through. Oh, yeah. Do you think in some respects you're almost postponing it, almost by being so busy writing the book, making, doing events like in the concert hall, that you may be facing a little bit of harder time ahead of you? The hard time really came, you're absolutely right, the hard time, the most difficult time was two months after she died. Um, She died in September 2021. And by the middle of January, all the messages and all the invitations and all the stuff that people do to, you know, keep you afloat, all of that fell away. Because obviously people have to get on with their own lives and you have to face the kind of coalface of being on your own for the first time and you just have to there's no you know there's no short circuit on that and you you just have to deal with it so I found that posting little videos about you know what I was experiencing on social media turned out to be a completely unexpected but incredibly rewarding um experience because the response I got from people that I will never meet but their shared experiences made you feel that you are not alone. 
And that was incredibly helpful. So, you know, the, the, the most challenging part, obviously, is that rationally you understand that you can never touch or talk to that person ever again, in my case, my wife. But uh, emotionally, I just couldn't get my head around that. And it's what I refer to as the steering wheel stuff in my show, where it's like when you go home and uh, Joan would say to me, so you, have, you were on the la uh, last word with Matt Cooper. What was he like? How old is he? What did he ask you? What was he wearing? Uh, did you get a word in? Did he get a word in? You know, all the stuff that you just do, this uh, minute eye of your day, minutiae of your day, there is nobody to tell that to in the same way anymore. So apart from keeping a diary, which I do, and I write, you know, just before I go to go to bed, where you know I sort of meditate or ruminate on what has happened in the day and who I've met or who I've talked to, or what extraordinary thing has or hasn't happened. There is nobody to tell that to in the same way that you have when you've had a partner for thirty-eight years. So I've thought a lot about that, and I thought, well, I don't unfortunately believe in an afterlife or that I'm going to ever see her again or hear her extraordinary voice. But because we were together for 38 years, of which only eight months were the last terminal months of her life, I am so habituated to know how she will respond to something. So I have a two-way conversation with myself, not out loud, where I can say, yeah, well, Matt is, uh, you know, he, he just explained to me that he has you know, back issues if he sits on a chair for too long. So he's sitting on a great big rubber medicine ball in the studio and told me that he's never fallen off the thing and means when I leave here, I'm going to go buy one myself so that I'm writing, I'm not going to have the same issue. You know, all that kind of stuff. So I'm I'm now sharing that in my head with my wife because I know what her response would be. <laughs> the last eight months when she was terminally ill yeah. and you write so movingly about the experience that you shared throughout it, but did it in some respects also give you that little bit of time to prepare oh, for life without, without her? Completely, because my daughter's best friend's father dropped out of a heart attack. So, you know, then in the morning he said goodbye, you know, as you normally do, bye dad, and he never came back. Whereas... From the moment of her diagnosis on her birthday in December 21st, 2020, until the day that she died eight months later, uh, we had all this time to say and try and do everything that we wanted to try and cram into that amount of time that we had left. Um, of course, that, that's a romanticized version of what actually goes on because she was so exhausted by this um, cancer in her lungs by the end that she she said, I am so tired, I long to go and please give me your permission to go. And I knew from the palliative nurses that came to help us in the last two weeks of her life that they said this is very common with people at the end of their lives. They ask permission to go so they don't have to hold on. So that felt like a great privilege. And, and she had also said to me, Swaz, which was a nickname that she gave me because I grew up in Swaziland, she said, I want if at all possible, to be without any pain, which we managed to uh, facilitate, and also to die at home in bed and with you next to me. And that is what happened. So if you can talk about a death being a good death, I think she had as good a death as possible. And, you know, she said this extraordinary thing to my daughter and I four days before she died, try and find a pocket full of happiness in each day, which is, you know, the title of this memoir. And, of course, what is built into that, which I hadn't taken on board at the time, is that it gives you permission to feel joy or, you know, laughter or happiness after her passing uh, without feeling any guilt. And that has been, I think, one of the greatest 
unexpected gifts of what she said in that little sentence. Obviously, from the book and from the way you talk about her, she was a remarkable anchor for you. Yeah. But she was very accomplished in her own right as well. And I think we should actually talk about that. Just tell me a little bit about what she did in her professional career for other people before she became your anchor. Okay, she is. The, she was like the female Henry Higgins from My Fair Lady or uh, Pygmalion because she taught actors to do accents and also gave them you know, unofficially acting notes and really help them with the performances. So she worked with people at the AAA list compared to anybody almost that I've worked with, from Meryl Streep to Robert Redford, Barbara Streisand, up, down and sideways, Brendan Gleeson, Donald Gleeson, Gabriel Byrne, Liam Neeson. You know, the list is endless of the people that she worked with and uh, Ray Fiennes and... So at the end of the memoir, I have collated all the messages that we got from her most illustrious clients, uh, including Kate Blanchett and Jessica Chastain, and just printed up what they all said about her. Um, so I feel very... It, it, it's like having a printed memorial so that people who've never met her can hear what people that they have seen in movies or on TV can read about what influence she had on their careers and their private lives. What does she make of your career? <laughs> oh, I think she, you know, she always thought that I could do better. And she said to me, if you ever go on Strictly Come Dancing, I will divorce you. <laughs> Were you tempted? Was I tempted? Um, I was asked once and um, with her admonition ringing loud me, loudly in my ears, I said, reluctantly that I wasn't available. I think that the idea of sitting on a Saturday night and seeing her husband being ripped apart by four judges in spangly outfits was beyond the pale of what she was prepared to find acceptable. <laughs> what sort of work did she have to do with your accent? Uh, well, when I got to England in 1982, when I emigrated at the age of 25, um, I met a couple of... Uh, directors at auditions and they said where do you come from and I said Swaziland I said ah oh, right okay and I said well, why are you saying it like that they said because you speak English like somebody from the 1950s so I got very self-conscious about that and then went and met this woman called Joan Washington who was giving a series of dialect classes at the Actors Centre um, and I said after I'd done all the courses including learning a Belfast accent because the agent that I had then said, you know, because of all the Irish troubled dramas that were being made at that time, and you're tall, you have black hair and blue eyes, as I did then, um, you could feasibly go up for Irish parts. I never got an Irish part, but um, I had to go and learn an accent from her. And then she subsequently gave me three private lessons to fix what I was self-conscious about in the way that I spoke. I've men mentioned her as an anchor on a couple of occasions. Yeah. I think partly that may be down to the fact of your own upbringing and maybe the troubled times you had with your own parents, with yeah. your father. And also, in you write, and it's almost like a throwaway in the book, which suddenly sort of hits you, about seeing your mother in flagrante with your father's best friend when you were 10 years of age and you were supposed to be asleep in the back seat of the car. Yeah. Um, you know, that wasn't planned. And I'm sure that my mother, you know, I know that my mother was horrified when she found out 35 years later that I had actually seen this. But, you know, they were coming She back. was taking something of a chance, though, if you were asleep in the back of the car. She was, yeah. But, you know, when, when people are overtaken by lust, then, you know, I, I, <laughs> I can't blame anybody. It's just unfortunate that it happened to be my mother. 
and that I was asleep. But, you know, she thought it was probably late at night. I'd been you know, playing around, uh, watching my father playing cricket, and then they'd gone to the clubhouse afterwards, and people had a lot to drink, which probably added to it. And I thought, well, you know, it wasn't exactly like Swaziland. It was full of hotels where you could check in as a married woman with another married man. Everybody would have known about it instantly. So the options of where you could, you know, go, you know, bonga drumming on the front seat of a car um, was probably just opportunistic. So, yeah, whatever. She's still alive, though, in moderation. <laughs> she is. She's 91. Yeah. How is she? Indefatigable. She's uh, 91. She still lives in Africa. She plays bridge three times a week. She drives. She uh, uh, reviews five books that she reads every week for a publishing company. Um, chain smokes. She is as feisty as you could get. How yeah. does she respond to this revelation about her that you put in your book? Oh, I, I had told her 15, uh, 16 years ago after, after I'd had some psychoanalysis that I was, I'd written this autobiographical movie and the infograta scene in the car um, played in the movie version uh, by Miranda Richardson and my father was played by Gabriel Byrne. Um, she, I told her about this in advance and she she read the screenplay and she'd never read one of those before and I you know, warned her that it's written in a kind of telegraphed form and that you have to condense years into 120 pages, you know, equivalent to 120 minutes of screen time. And when she saw the film, she said to me, that is exactly how it was and you have honoured the past. So I was absolutely astonished by that. So anyway, and all her friends said, we had no idea that you had such a racy past. So she was flattered. You, all, you have a multi-talented <laughs> career because you've done so many things, acting, television, presenting, writing. I mean, this is not your first book. But that desire to be busy, yes. do you think, does that come almost a bit from like the shock of what happened to you in your childhood? Uh Matt Cooper, Oprah Winfrey, I would like to answer and say <laughs> yes, that is the answer. But my father said to me when I was nine years old, you are like an overwound clock. When are you going to slow down? So that is obviously, and it's very difficult to see yourself from the outside. So to me, it feels completely normal to be hyperactive. I wouldn't call myself that or hypercurious, but other people have told me enough uh, those two things over the last, you know, 65 years of my life that I now accept that that is what my characteristics must be. But I think the thing that really motivated mo me more than anything is my father died of lung cancer at the age of 53 when I was 24. And I thought, wow, that is, that is less than double the age that I was then. Oh, no, no, it's, I can't do maths. It was just over, it was just over double. Yeah. So when I got, I thought, I have to get everything that I can out of my life because he was very insistent that heaven and hell were uh, concepts made up by human beings and that nobody had ever come back from the dead. So this was your one and only chance. That was, you know, inculcated into my brain right from, you know, ever since I was a toddler. So I think that every year that I've lived beyond his 53 years, and I'm now 65 and a half, feel to me like a kind of bonus because I thought, well, you know, maybe I would have died at 53. So I don't know whether that, you know, it's a long way of answering your short question, Mr. Matt Cooper, whether that is why I, I do so much or, I don't know, calling Dr. Freud, I have no idea. Just, it's just what I, 
I do. I, I don't consciously think about it. Well, Just what happens. One last one. Yes. And I'll ask you to use your imagination a little bit in this one. The conversations that you have in your head as yeah. if Joan is still there. Yeah. What sort of conversation do you think you'd have with her about this book, A Pocket Full of Happiness? What do you think she would say to you about it? <laughs> Goodness me. Uh, I think she would say you have probably been more detailed than maybe you should have been. I don't know. But then she knew that I was a complete detail obsessive and I liked every little thing, every every detail or curlicue of something is something that fascinates me more than, you know, a big broad broad stroke of something. So I don't know, I'm now speaking, I'm now, Matt, I'm speaking gobbledygook. I hope that she would have approved. And because my daughter is so like her in the way that she thinks and responds to things. She's very pragmatic and very down to earth, much more so than I am in my head's in the clouds half the time. I gave her the veto. Once I'd written out the whole manuscript at the beginning of the year, I said, I will not send this to the publisher until you have decided whether one sentence should be cut out or the whole thing. And she came back with a short paragraph of suggestions and notes, which I obviously instated instantly and she said this is as accurate a portrait of your marriage and her mum my wife's illness as I could possibly hope for and she said I think it is an amazing and loving tribute to her so that is what I am hoping that my wife would have felt too. It's a beautiful read. Thank you. A pocket full of happiness Richard E. Grant thank you so much for having joined us. (laughs) Thank you Matt. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.